Hi, and welcome into Balls in the Air. I'm your friendly host, Charlie Reimer, and uh, we got a special show for you today. Uh, this, this, doing this show has been a lot of fun for me because I get to talk to a lot of uh, neat folks, uh, a lot of friends, um, some special guests. But today, I'm telling you, is really special because it, it's uh, one, of my, one of my best friends on the planet, family, really. Uh, thrilled to be joined by four-time PGA Tour winner, and this kills me to say this, two-time All-American at the University of Georgia, uh, a, a man who comes from an amazing golf family. We're going to get into that real quick, but uh, at age 16, he actually won the Indiana State Amateur. Think about that for a second, folks, how how amazing the state of Indiana has been in golf, and to have a 16-year-old be the state amateur champion, re- really exceptional. But please welcome Billy Kratzer. Billy, thanks for uh, uh, taking some time to come on my show today, and as always, great to see you, and uh, great to hang out with you a little little bit well thank you for that intro charlie that was uh, way too kind and uh but very happy to do it and very happy to spend some time with you well billy i want to i want to get into your background a little bit because folks over these last 25 years have come to know you and love you through your your work in television and and believe me when i say this folks we we make fun of a lot of announcers um, as fellow announcers make fun of each other and say, we, you work for every network. Truly, Billy works for every network. We'll get into that a little bit later, too. But but I want to go back a ways. I mentioned you won that state amateur at age 16. Your, your family's amazing golf family. Your, your sister, uh, Kathy Gehring, uh, ha- had a lot of success on the LPGA up until a horrible injury uh, that, that she had. It was a freak freak accident that, that really sidelined her, her career. Uh, but but I want to talk a little bit about your dad first. So you you were born in Quantico, Virginia. You you were raised in Fort Wayne, Indiana, where your dad was was uh, uh, the, the head professional of the Fort Wayne Country Club for a long time. He's a Marine. I passed. We lost him a few years ago. We lost a good one in your dad. But tell tell me a little bit about growing up in Fort Wayne and this amazing golf family. It's actually been golf family of the year uh, by the PGA of America in the past. But what what was it like growing up? on that really neat golf course with a dad and a family and an amazing golf community? Well, Charlie, it, it certainly afforded me the, the opportunity to, to learn the game. And, and I think if I, when I reflect back and I think what my father did is that he never really pushed me towards golf. Um, I played baseball. I played hockey. Uh, I was fortunate to play against Gordy Howe's sons, um, in a national championship uh, in peewee hockey. Uh, so he never really pushed me. He let me experience all the other sports. Uh, it was never a, you know, a defined, you're going to play golf. Uh, this is what you need to do. He kind of let me seek it out on my own. And that was the beauty of it. And so, you know, we didn't live that far from the golf course. So I would just kind of put my clubs on the, on my shoulder and ride my bicycle over there. And, and I'd go over there and hit balls and play. And uh, what he did right at the beginning, Charlie, is for me to be allowed to play the Fort Wayne Country Club, which is a private membership golf course, I had to caddy there. So uh, I had to caddy at least three days a week. And uh, that gave me the opportunity to go out and play. And so uh, I kind of learned how to play there, and it's an old-style golf course. You and I talk a lot about old-style golf courses. Everything's defined off the tee. You know exactly what shot you need to hit immediately off the tee. 
you know how you have to approach those very tiny greens. So uh, it was a great experience. Wouldn't trade it for anything. Um, Fort Wayne's a great town. And uh, the only the only drawback was the winters can get a little cold. <laughs> I, I understand that. Uh, so many of us in this game le- learn from the folks that, that came before us. And, and for me, and you, you and I get, didn't get to be friends until we started broadcasting together. I'd, I'd certainly seen you around. You were still playing some tour events when I was playing. We never got paired together on, on the PGA Tour. But you got into broadcasting a year or so earlier than I did. And, and when, when you get into broadcasting, folks, there's not some school they send you to or class or online course or anything like that. They throw you in the deep end of the pool and, and see if you sink or you swim. And, and you, you and I became good friends right there at the beginning. And you, you sort of took me un, under your wing. And, I, and I'll tell you right now, you know, you're my big brother. And, and I learned so much from you. But I also know that you're not smart enough to figure out a lot of these things that you told me on your own. You learned a lot from your dad, a lot of great lessons. I, hanging out with you, you know, I learned the importance of being on time and being prepared and, 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 and so many things that I, that I use every day. But but I know those lessons came from your from your dad. So so talk to me a little bit about your dad. Maybe a an instance or two uh, where you learned something from him that has stuck with you your your entire life. Well, whether whether he was upset or he didn't understand the situation with uh, maybe a member or a person. Um, you know, he kind of really never lost, you know, the composure, you know, whether that was the fact that he was a Marine or the upbringing, his, his, my grandfather, his father um, was a very disciplined man. Um, and he was an engineer for the highway department in the state of Florida. Um, something that I did not get from my grandfather was the fact he never made a B or less his entire education he made all a's and so that you know i rarely made an a so uh so we were different there but i think the thing that that sticks out in my mind charlie is that that my dad he would listen he was a great listener before he reacted and it's almost like he he gained all the knowledge or all the information that he needed in order to make a decision and I think, you know, when I when I think about, uh, you know, a couple of cases where members had come in and they were a little upset and everything, and he just kind of take them and he said, well, let's just talk this out. And you know, they'd go from a, from the pro shop to the clubhouse, back to the pro shop, and from a I'm going to say a 120 yard walk, everything was resolved. And so there was never that quick reactionary kind of outward, you know, statement, there was always that ability to listen, process, and then act. I haven't always done it. You know, (laughs) (laughs) but I try, I try to do that. And I think that's probably one of the greatest lessons that I ever learned from my father is that he was a whole lot smarter than I thought he was. Mm -hmm. Um, and he became so smart by the time I became 21. <laughs> but, um, you know, he had that ability to listen. And, you know, he was cagey. Hey, he told me stories 
And I remember, you know, coming coming home and, and the curfew was, I think, one o'clock, very lenient. And um, I exceeded that by about three hours, maybe three and a half hours. And I had to get up the next day because I had to, to you know, go to the pro shop. And so all of a sudden I get a knock on my bedroom door and uh, he says, hey, how you doing? I said, oh, I'm doing fine. He says, you about ready? I said, yeah, okay. What I didn't know is that he had gone down to see where my car was parked. When he came back up, he wanted to know when I got in. And I told him, well, I think it, it may have been a little bit after one, uh, but not much after. He says, well, before you come to the pro shop today, I'd like for you to take your car down to get the engine checked. Because when I put my hand on the hood, it was still hot. <laughs> and I went, oh. Awfully cagey. Yeah. So um, very savvy. But but I think uh, a great lesson I learned, Charlie, was the fact that he listened before he reacted. Yeah, that's, uh, I know there's so many lessons uh, learned from your dad. I know, I know you miss him. And I always enjoyed the time I got to, to spend with him. I, I, I want to talk to you about your, your sister, Kathy. For, for the people that don't know her story, would, would, would you sort of go over her career a little bit and then the accident, and then maybe we'll get into uh, how she's doing today? Charlie, she was, she was probably, I'm going to say, the best athlete in the family. Um, well, my dad was the best athlete because he lettered in three sports at Florida State. But uh, Kathy was a heck of an athlete, uh, and she really – didn't take up the game of golf till late. And anyways, through her play and quick advancement, she was able to get a scholarship to Marshall, but then things didn't work out there. So she transferred to Ohio state and she played for Ohio state. And then uh, she was able to get on the LPGA tour. She was on the Solheim cup team. Um, she and Dottie Pepper, I have pictures of the two of them uh, winning their match. Um, but she had a she had a wonderful career. Uh, she married Jim Garing, and Jim Garing was the first director of golf at Merrifield Village for Jack Nicklaus. And so after marriage, uh, you know, then they had a, you know a child. They had Zach. Well, they were in Nashville for the Sarah Lee. And what happened was she was the only one in line at a buffet line, and one of the workers behind. Oh, no. I, I know it's a bad story you're telling, but, folks, I got to tell you, that's a Georgia fight song that just came on when his phone rang. And me being a Georgia <laughs> Tech guy, I don't, know, I don't know if I can even continue this podcast after hearing that Georgia fight song, uh, Billy. Well, it's one of your favorite people, my <laughs> wife, Jane. So, but, I understand but, that. But back, back to the story. Start, sorry to interrupt. Okay. Um, so she was in line, and she was in line alone, and – the worker behind had denatured alcohol and was trying to fill the Rashad underneath. And instead of bringing it out, filling it, he squirted it. And what it did is it hit the Rashad and the denatured alcohol carried the flame up onto Kathy. Mm. And because she didn't have a petroleum based shirt on, 
she was okay. I mean, she had severe burns on her face and hands, but she didn't have it on her body. But um, I remember driving from Fort Wayne, Indiana to Nashville. It's about, I'm, I'm going to say it's about a seven, seven and a half hour drive. I made it in about 6.15. And, uh, and so after winning three tournaments on the LPGA and being a member of the Solheim Cup team, then, okay, where's the career? Uh, where are you? Uh, and that pretty much, because of the hand damage and the nerve damage, that pretty much ended her career as a professional golfer on the LPGA. Uh, now, she tried to play a couple of times um, a few years later, um, but just, you know, she couldn't practice as long. She couldn't, uh, the stamina wasn't there. So the decision was made by her and, and Jim uh, that, hey, you know what? It's fine. You had a great career. We're sorry that it was cut short, and um, let's let's move on. And so she's moved on, um, and, you know, she's, She's kind of battled a couple of things uh, when you have injuries like that, to, but she's doing a great job now. She and Jim, uh, Jim's retired. And so they, uh, they spend their half the time in Fort Wayne and half the time in Miami. So uh, that horse track is just around the corner <laughs> in Miami. <laughs> well, I know they spend a lot of time there. That's a lot of fun, but she's happy and, and healthy uh, functioning yeah. well right now. Yeah. And her boys are doing well. So um you know, everything's good there. Yeah. Well, thank you for updating that. It was a horrible accident. I, I've enjoyed the few times I've got to, to hang out with her, and she's always looking for dirt on you, and that's not hard to come up with. So, Wow. Um. Wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> we'll get into that on another day. Now, you're a man that's made few mistakes in your life, very few mistakes, but one of them was deciding to go to the University of Georgia. How did you end up at the University of Georgia, I and mean, what happened on that? It was just a, just a weakness, you know, that, I mean – I mean, college isn't just for everybody. What was up with that? <laughs> Charlie, Charlie. I did visit a few colleges. Uh, I, I took a visit to Wake Forest, enjoyed the visit there. Um, even went to Florida, Florida State, LSU, uh, Houston. Um, but maybe it was just the right time to visit Georgia. Mm-hmm. When you visit the University of Georgia in April, that's kind of the the start of uh-huh. of, of, of when maybe the coeds uh, a lot the, of good the scenery sun, there. The sundresses uh, start reappearing, and uh, no, I, but seriously, I you know that's certainly a benefit, obviously. But uh, I don't. I just felt like it was home. Uh, Alan Miller had just graduated. And he was an All-American, uh, a highly rated amateur player. He kind of just walked me through the process when we were at the Porter Cup, Sunny Hannah, playing all these amateur tournaments. And when I went down there for a visit, uh, he was there. Tommy Valentine was there. Danny Yates was there. And it was just kind of a connect. And I felt like if I went to the University of Georgia, I felt like I could play right away. Yeah. Uh, Wake Forest loaded, Houston loaded. Um, I just, you know, didn't have the confidence that I could just automatically jump right in and, and play right away. But at Georgia, I felt like I could be a part of the team and, and play all four years. Well, it's certainly a decision that paid off. Uh, yeah, you had, had a great career there, two-time All-American. But I, I do understand 
that uh, shooting dove uh, in the backyard of the SAE house is probably frowned upon there in Athens. Is that the case? Didn't know it was illegal. Uh, <laughs> Did you get but, any? <laughs> well, yeah. And, uh, and my buddy, uh, Eddie Roddenberry, we just decided that uh, we had kind of done our practice and everything. And um, a couple of pledges were up the stairs. So um, we decided to go ahead and, and take a little practice. So we had them throw some clays out the window and we didn't think much of it. So uh, we just continued when we didn't have the, any more clays. Uh -huh. So there were a few dove that flew over uh -huh. that uh, they didn't quite make it across the yard. And, uh, and as you could probably guess, there were some sirens and some officers uh -huh. and, they explained to us, and then we went in front of uh, the athletic director, Joel Leaves, and we were scolded, and we were very fortunate not to be sent home and never to come back to the University of Georgia. So we owe a lot to Joel Leaves. He was a great, uh, you know, athletic director and but yeah you know that was not a that was not a great moment for uh old billy boy and eddie <laughs> how, how long was it after that happened that your dad found out about it or did you ever tell him i don't think i got back to mcwater hall uh -huh. before he knew about it <laughs> that doesn't and, surprise me and that conversation didn't go well either mm -hmm. <laughs> i'm sure it didn't but let, let's talk about um after school, you graduated. Uh, I believe your degree was was in business, solid degree, University of Georgia, and uh, you didn't get to the Q school immediately. Uh, you 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 couple shots and didn't make it, and then you you got a real job for a little while. T tell me about that real job, and did that motivate you to get through the Q school in your third attempt, like you? Pulled off. Can you can you drive a forklift? I, I don't think I can fit on a forklift. Not in the seat. I could fit on the front of it. You know, you can lift me around. <laughs> I could put you. You know what? I could put you on a pallet. Uh -huh. Put the forks right up underneath it and lift you straight up in the air. <laughs> but that's what I did, Charlie. Um, yeah, I guess it was a it was a burnout. Um, whether it was a physical, a mental, um, so far as the game was concerned. Um, so I just decided to go home, um, went home in the wintertime, uh, a gentleman by the name of Mr. Lehman, uh, owned a company. And I said, Hey, all I want is just a place to go work eight hours a day. That's a, that's all I'm looking for. I just want to just kind of just get away from the game. And so I went there and did my eight hours a day and drove that forklift around the, the warehouse and loaded trucks and everything. It was you know what? It was pretty fun. And if, it, if, if that forklift would have gone just a little bit faster, I'm pretty <laughs> sure I would have had a wreck and, and OSHA would have been after me. But, but no, and you know, it, you know, it's kind of a valuable lesson to me because at that time, because, you know, I thought, you know what? I don't want, not that it's a bad thing, but I don't, I don't want to do that because that's not what interests me. What interests me is going and playing professionally. That's what I want to do. And that, 
when I was kind of waffling, did I want to go into a business? Uh, did I want to go back to school? Um, could I get in law school? Could I do anything like that? But driving that forklift drove me to where I needed to be. And that was back in golf. John Savages at another club gave me a position. I taught for a year, decided to go back to the Q school and made it. Well, once you got through the Q school and you got comfortable on tour, you had maybe five years around 1980 where you played your best golf. Uh, I, I think you had four or five years right in there where you were no worse than 12th on the money list. Yeah. What, what, what do you remember most from, from that period? I mean, obviously you've got the four wins that, that, that happened pretty close to that window. But, but th those five years where you were playing your best golf, when you think about that time, what, what's the first thing that stands out? Just how just how much fun it was to to actually to have the opportunity to to play with Arnold, with Jack, with Lee, with Raymond, with Weisskopf. I played with Arnold when I was sixteen uh, in an exhibition in Fort Wayne, Indiana. But that was the beauty of it. Today, uh, you know, the guys do a lot of practice. They they use track band and and they work out all the time and, and all of that. But when I started. Okay, you play or you warm up, and then you go play. And so you're on the golf course, and you're, you're visiting with guys, and, and you're kind of seeing, you're watching them, how they play different shots. I, I think you pick up so much more when you, when you do that. And, you know, Arnold, Lanny, you know, Jim Colbert, Eichelberger, Ed Snee, all these guys, you know, there was always a game on Tuesday. Mickelson didn't have – he didn't come up with this idea of the Tuesday game. Mm -hmm. That Tuesday game was done a whole lot earlier, and it got a little expensive at times. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I'm sure it did. The players now – and I don't want to do the old guy talking about the young guy routine. I mean, obviously things have changed, but but by and large it, it's pretty, pretty safe to say that the, the younger players, they, they put themselves in a bubble – and they don't really interact with, with, with a lot of the, the current players or some of the legends. I, I love hearing uh, the, the stories about you spending time with, with Mr. Palmer and some of the players that, that predated Mr. Palmer a little bit and maybe some of the wisdom got passed down and some of the unwritten rules of golf got passed down where that it just doesn't happen this day and age. No, you know, and, I th and I think one of the, the ones that really um, – kind of is overlooked a lot that was not overlooked when I first came out on tour is a slow play. Mm -hmm. it, there was, there was more self policing of the slow play. You didn't want to be that guy in the locker room with two other guys coming towards you. If you had that corner locker to be spoken to, mm. you did not want to have to address slow play. Therefore, uh, it went pretty quickly. And if you were slow, you may get you may get a warning uh, with maybe a par five, and all of a sudden the guy fires it up there right on the fringe of the green. That was kind of a signal that maybe you need to hustle a little bit. Um, I think <laughs> wait, 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 let's go, go over that again. If you, <laughs> if you were slow, somebody could actually fire one onto the green before you got off there. On a par five. You yeah, know, if you're yeah. kind of waiting, you know, 
kind of the signal was, okay, let's just fire it up there. If I, if I get it on the green, it's just going to roll up there anyways. But you just go ahead and fire it, and um, usually there's the courtesy of you don't want to do that because you don't want the sound of the ball hitting the turf mm. to disrupt the putting stroke. But if they were slow and, and you knew that they were over a hole behind, you just go ahead and fire one up there, and if it rolled up there, so be it. And if they <laughs> if they said anything, maybe you ought to quicken your pace. Uh, and and that's kind of how it was handled. I, lo- I love hearing that. One, one of my favorite stories you've ever told me, I believe it was Memphis. You might have been a rookie. You were paired with with uh, Palmer and Don January. Uh, t- tell tell me about what happened on the first tee there. I, did I get that right? It was Memphis. It's it's Colonial. Colonial, okay. Colonial in Fort Worth. So I'm a rookie, and it's uh, final round, um, and I we're Palmer, January, and myself, and so I tee off. January tees off, and. And Arnold tees off and he hits that low riser and he starts walking right away. And well, I start taking off. And all of a sudden I hear January, hey kid. So I kind of look back, kid, come here. We're just gonna take it a little slower today. He says, he's he's like he's like a bull. And we're going to let the bull get out there in front of us. And we're going to let the bull just run at his pace. And we're just going to slow the game down a little bit. And about the 15th hole, the bull's going to get a little tired. And we're just going to watch. And sure enough, you know how hot and steamy it can get down there Mm -hmm. in in Fort Worth. All of a sudden, we're just kind of there. And... 15th hole, you know, Arnold, he had the shirt out and he's like this and, you know, the collar way open like that and hands on the hips and he's down there and we're walking down the fairway in January and says, take a look. The bull's <laughs> about ready to expire. <laughs> <laughs> you and Don January icing Arnold Palmer. I, I love hearing that. I, that some, of the, some of the other stories I would hear, um, back, back in the day, the people weren't as precise with the yards and, and, and you, you'd sort of club off of the, the guys you were playing with. And, <laughs> and th- there was actually a shot in golf where people would practice. If you, if you had somebody clubbing off of you, 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 you'd figure out how to hit maybe, you, you know, something a little off speed to mess them up. Is, is that true? Have you ever seen that happen? <laughs> well, I told you it happened to me with Weisskopf at Doral. Okay. Um, you know, I was kind of bag hawking over there. I'm kind of going, you know, I'm looking and, and all that. And I've been doing it for eight holes. And and so he just kind of went in there and, and um, he and Leroy were a great team. And, and you know, they, they would have a little conversation. And, I mean, it's a seven iron shot, Charlie maybe an eight iron all depending on the whole location. And so the wind's in our face and you know how it can blow in Miami. And mm-hmm. so it was, it was pretty strong. Well, all of a sudden T gets in there and he pulls out a five iron. And so I'm looking, I see the four and I see the six and I, you know, I see the seven. I'm going, good gosh, it's got to be a lot of club. All of a sudden he takes this big swing and he, he says, that's all I got Leroy. <laughs> and this thing went in there about 10 feet right behind the hole. So I'm looking at uh, 
Wayne Beck, my caddy, and I'm going, that was a five iron. He says, yeah, and he looked like he hit it good. <laughs> so sure enough, I take that five iron out. I whistled it into those bleachers. It clanked around, <laughs> and, and I had to call for a ruling because I had no idea where I needed to drop. I was a club and a half too much. But Sam, but Sam was that way as well. Sam Snead. Yeah. He could hit a three iron 160 yards and, you know, he could throw you way off. And um, I'm not so sure you can do that with the equipment today. Like yeah. uh, the guys would do it, but yeah, that's, that was, that was part of, the, part, of the, part, part of the game that just doesn't exist anymore. Really. I mean, you don't really mess with anybody, maybe sometimes occasionally in match play, but weekend and week out on the PGA tour, really nothing like that goes on. Does it? No. No, and you know whether it's the equipment or not, I don't know. But these the, the guys today, it's it's a totally different game because you know they play such a power game, and um, you know it's certainly fun to watch. Uh, you and I get a big kick out of how quickly they can push the ball through the air. But yeah, when I I, I reflect back to some of those shots, uh, you know, Chi-Chi could do that a lot. Uh, there were a lot of the old players that could could kind of mess with your mind, but. When he smiled at me when I was walking off the tee, I just went, <laughs> okay, uh, can that be the last time, please? <laughs> a very valuable lesson you learned there. Uh, no club hawking, especially with Tom Weiskopf. So I, I want to talk to you about driving the golf ball. Uh, you're known for being one of the best drivers of the golf ball, Um Really, ever and and you're 68 now, and and if you and I went and played golf this afternoon, and you only hit 12 fairways, you wouldn't be happy. And and he, folks, he doesn't hit it short either. And it's this beautiful draw. And and I, I just have always loved and admired watching you drive the golf ball. And and so I just want to ask you for our listeners, one key that you have that you can maybe describe that that would help somebody listening drive the golf ball a little bit better. Probably the biggest key for, for most people, amateurs, uh, pros alike, is the transition. The, the, the more time you can put in a swing, um, the better the transition is. And when the transition is good, because you want all the speed going forward. And if the transition is fast, then the shoulders, the torso, everything gets out in front. And then you become upper body oriented. Mm -hmm. the, the sequence gets totally out of whack. So I would think that for the people that are listening, if you can make that transition, I don't care about the shoulder turn because some people are limited. Some people, uh, they can't make a hip turn. Uh, so they're kind of stuck there. But whatever the length of your golf swing might be, if the transition can be a little bit slower and smoother, to where you can go ahead and get the proper sequence. I think that's the key to great driving is when you look at guys, when, when you watch Rory McIlroy, he's probably the best long driver in the game. In my opinion, he and Dustin Johnson, it's, it's almost like, you know, there are times when McIlroy looks like he's back there and he just kind of stays back at the top of his swing. And then the transition it's just like taking a paintbrush and going right down the wall. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a, that's a huge key for people when they want to drive the ball accurately and, and hitting it solid because if the body becomes too, too much 
you know, this way and, and overtaking the arm swing and the club itself, you're going to hit it on the toe. You're going to hit it on the heel. You're always seeking and you're always manipulating. So I think that transition painting the wall on the way down is, is a great visual. Be patient and paint that wall on the transition coming out. I, I love it. And, and that's certainly something that, that I try to do when I'm out driving it, have more success, less success with it than you do. But, but when I'm driving it, well, that's the way it feels to me. But you, you mentioned a McElroy, you mentioned a Dustin Johnson. Um, those players to me sort of relate to you playing your best golf, let's say around 1980, watching a Roy McElroy swing. I, I can see where that there's some commonalities there. But when I look and see what Bryson DeChambeau is doing, I don't see much in common with what we've sort of thought of as being traditional golf swing, traditional approach to the game. What what when you look at a Bryson DeChambeau, what what I mean, driving it in the heat of battle, pulling that driver and just going at it like he does, what what do you think? I think he he's kind of figured out that he's going to have access to a whole location, whether he's in the row or he's in the fairway. Um, you know, you can look at, at Wingfoot. I think the fact that the rough was so tall, it actually benefited him because when you start looking at the field and what they were able to do so far as their percentage of fairways hit, well, he was at a higher percentage of hitting fairways than the field average. Now you put him out there at 340, and then somebody back here at, at 275, no one can spot another player 70 yards mm -hmm. and beat them, even in the fairway, I don't think. And that's what happened. Uh, and DeChambeau didn't lead that week uh, so far as distance off the tee. It was Matthew Wool. But I think that's where the game, the way that the ball is constructed, the way that the irons are constructed, uh, you know, you take it as deep as you can, and then you take your chances. I remember first seeing that uh, up at Shinnecock Hills with VJ Singh, first tee shot. You know, everyone's trying to play to the corner down there. Well, he took a driver and took it right at the green. He didn't care that he was in the rough. Now, square grooves were still being played then, but he took it down there as far as he could, so he had a wedge in his hand. Instead of having a eight iron back here, he felt like he could get the sandwich closer. And that's the first time I saw it. But, um, I, you know, you want to drive the ball well. And when we talk about a uh, Jordan Spieth with the way that he's driven the ball, I, it doesn't make a lot of difference in today's game how many fairways you hit. It's this – It's can you go play your miss? Mm -hmm. and, and I think if Jordan can tighten that up – and he's not playing off the sidewalls as much, then that's when we're going to get Jordan Spieth back to where we're used to seeing him play. Uh, driving the ball, uh, you know, usually guys that chase yardage, uh, they don't succeed. But uh, it was important when I played to drive the ball in the fairway because you didn't have the equipment that um, you could get through the rough. And, and it's good to see the U.S. Open get back to their identity, mm -hmm. and, and I like that. And, and I, I think there should be more importance put on accuracy, but um, with the way these guys play, as strong as they are, and the depth uh, and the parity out there, it's it's going to be hard to do. You're as plugged in as anyone. We're, we're in basically a comment period. 
from the USDA and the RNA over trying to reel in distance. Your, your best take on this, are, are the governing bodies going to be able to make changes that are going to be significant enough that, that will throttle what we see on the professional tours day in and day out in terms of distance? Well, I don't think you can roll it back. I don't think the study has, has you know, done a whole lot to, to change my mind. Um, I think putting a ceiling on where it was in 2020, when all the discussion was being made and, and when it started, it started about February 6, 2020, um, when people started trying to think, okay, what can we do to better the game and make it a little more realistic for the average golfer? I don't think you can do that. These guys are that good. They work out. The athletes are going to get bigger. Uh, they're going to be six foot four. They're going to be. 215 they're gonna have flexibility so i think if you just stay where you are then i think you're going to be as good as you can get it um i don't see a reason to roll it back mm -hmm. i really don't i i i just don't see the benefit i don't see if you've given this how you can take that away Jeez. and so it seems think, like if they I, try to do that, the winner's going to be the lawyers because that's going to be tied up in litigation for years. That's a great that's a great point as well. I just don't think it benefits anyone, yeah. game, player, whatever, to change anything. Just put the limits to where they are right now and don't exceed those and anymore. Live, and live with it. Yeah, because yeah. if, if they start trying to roll it back, the perception is average golfer is going to think, well, they, they, they got J Dustin Johnson playing a ball that cost him 40 yards. Well, it cost me 40 yards, too, and it wouldn't work that way. The average golfer would only use a, a, lose a yard or two, but they would think that, oh, they're trying to take my fun away. And, th and that would be a tough sell, I think, for the average golfer to do that. The only, the only thing that I think they could do, Charlie, is keep the distance in the ball, however you do that, along with making the ball spin more yeah that now how do you do that i don't know uh you know i'm not an aeronautical engineer and, and i would have no clue as to where to start but i think if you made the ball spin a little bit more to where that that offline shot instead of being eight or ten yards offline now all of a sudden it goes more into the 15 to 18 to 20 yard offline yeah. with a driver You'd bring short and straight and long and crooked into play, which we don't have exactly. either one of yes. those right but don't now. Take, yeah, but don't take the distance away from the, the guy that can, can take it 320. Yeah, but it needs to be that his mishits can be a little farther offline than they are right Correct. now. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, Billy, I, I appreciate your time today. I want to finish up with this. As I mentioned at the top of the show, you, you, you've – over the years, work for every network and every role. Uh, we're often seeing you uh, in, in the Golf Channel studio, down on the ground, doing the, the streaming for, for, uh, for down on the ground for a variety of networks, streaming for, for PGA Tour Live. You, you've been out uh, over this past year uh, at, at tour events and major championships on, on the ground, covering the events on site. It's been a challenging year. For, for many people because of this darn pandemic. And it about took me out. You, you know that. Um, yeah. and, and the wor world is very different. But when, when I look at what the PGA Tour and, and 
the, the other uh, governing bodies in golf, the USGA and the PGA and Augusta National, been able to do to go ahead and pull off these events. That and I know it's been different, but the the effort that has gone into that has been Herculean, and it's been amazing to me that they've been able to to pull it off. We're starting to see a few fans now, but just your take over the last year and, and what you were able to witness and watching golf being played in, in, in a time where everything is so different. Uh, and, and I know you're a little like me and that you're grateful that we were able to play professional golf, not, not only just because we make a living doing that, but um, in that I think it's important for people to – have something to look at when so many things are going bad in, in the world. Well, it was, it was a little more than a little strange to go to a golf tournament and, and really not have any fans there uh, to look across the fairway at Wingfoot last year. And, and I could see the par three, seven, then six, the par four, then, then five, then four. I mean, you could see clear across the golf course, but um, in conversations with, uh, Commissioner Jay Monahan, uh, he will tell you it, it's been a collaborative effort of his team in place, uh, the USGA, the PGA of America. Um, and you're right, it's been a Herculean effort, and they've done so well. I was a little nervous at Travelers when, okay, we got a couple weeks in, and then all of a sudden we went up there, and then there were there were two or three cases, and um, with maybe Brooks and then Ricky Elliott, and you thought, uh-oh, maybe it tipped right there and we weren't going to play. But all the preventative measures that were taken by the PGA Tour, by everyone associated in the golf industry and competitive golf, all the steps that they took were absolutely on the money. Mm-hmm. And they certainly laid the blueprint out there for everyone that they could follow. Now, when we get back to a 20% capacity, uh, I think that's what they're trying to achieve at the players this year. That's a huge step. But um, I'm in in agreement with you and I think everyone else that what everyone did in order to put golf out there uh, to be able to to watch has been fabulous. And, um, you know, I certainly don't want to see it again. Uh, I want this to be over sooner than later. And hopefully, you know, maybe late summer, we're, we're kind of at that point to where we're maybe half capacity. I don't know, but it's, you know, golf has been a big part of a lot of people feeling good about it and Mm -hmm. looking forward to something each week. You know, you have your seasons with football baseball, basketball, but golf is year round. I mean, there is a very little time off with the wraparound season. And and I think it's been good for a lot of people. And I think it's been good for the public. Certainly uh, the people playing golf, the amateurs, they can get out, they can have fun. Uh, you're supposed to be outside. You're supposed to get the vitamin D with the sun and all that. So um, golf has been good. Uh, it's now that we need to get uh, the PGA Tour and everyone so the spectators can see what's going on. Well, Billy, we got plenty of vitamin D here in Myrtle Beach. Uh, <laughs> I appreciate it when uh, you and Janie came up and visited uh, with Carol and myself. Uh, it's been a little too long, maybe about a year ago. You guys come on up to Myrtle Beach. We'll uh, we'll soak up some vitamin D on one of the great golf courses around here. I, don't, I can't eat anymore. I'm on a diet. 
But uh, we'll certainly tell some stories, and uh, I, I might be able to work in a beverage or two in there somewhere. But uh, thank you for your thoughts. Thank you for your uh, stories. Uh, you stay safe and appreciate your time and appreciate you. You too, my friend. Love you, buddy. All right. Love you too. Folks, that was Billy Kratzer, uh, one of the all-time best drivers of the golf ball in the history of tour, and he's also one of the all-time best tellers of stories on tour. Most of that wasn't very true, but uh, maybe a little bit of it was. But uh, we appreciate you being with us here on uh, Balls in the Air. I'm Charlie Reimer. Make sure that uh, you like us wherever you um, – Consume your podcast. We're available everywhere, and we'll be right back with you next week with another great guest here on Balls in the Air.